And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Usry, and I'm happy to welcome Anthony Amori to the program today. Anthony is the head of security at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. He and Tom Mashberg co-wrote Stealing Rembrandts, the untold stories of notorious art heists. Anthony then wrote The Art of the Con. His most recent book is The Woman Who Stole Vermeer, the true story of Rose Dugdale and the Rustboro House art heist, which is published by Pegasus Crime. Since you do have experience in national security matters as well as art, have you heard about any art theft or damage that happened from the invasion of the Capitol building on January 6th? That's a good question. I've been looking for that. I haven't seen it. I've only seen reference to someone who was injured when they were attempting to take a painting of Tip O'Neill, which is news or, you know, notable, at least here in Massachusetts, because that's where he's from. But I haven't seen confirmation of it. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. How did you get involved in the world of art and security for museums and such? Well, I started my career in Homeland Security. After 15 years working in that field, I decided I wanted to try security in a different realm. I saw an opportunity at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston, where I'm located. And the Gardner Museum is unfortunately known as the site of the biggest property heist in the history of the world. So I like challenges in my field. So I thought I would apply there. And then the next thing you know, I was protecting art and involved in investigating that theft that I just mentioned that occurred in 1990. Uh, Were there any other thefts? Oh, thank God, no. No, we've (laughs) had no incidents in my 15 years. So my, my career, knock on wood, is intact. So let's talk about Rose Dugdale. There's much to discuss. So she came from very privileged circumstances. What was her life like growing up in Devon, in the countryside of England? You know, you can't overstate how wealthy her family was. She lived on an idyllic estate with rolling green hills and horses and every luxury a young person could want, in addition to an apartment uh, in Tony part of Chelsea and attended the best young ladies' private school, Miss Ironsides. Just the sort of life that was expected of people from her class. I guess what you would describe her as now would be as one of the 1%. She came from and was part of a world that is exactly what she has railed against her entire adult life. And her father was an underwriter at Lloyd's of London. He was. I describe him as a man's man of the time and a rugged and tough sportsman, but a loving father. And despite the problems and the controversies that the family endured because of his daughter throughout her life. He stuck by her and never disowned her and always did what he could to take care of her. Her parents wanted her to have kind of a a conventional, wealthy, upper middle class type of life, but she wanted more to be than just a rich man's wife. She did, but it was a process. So you do see that her parents want her to participate in the debutante season. Many people have come out as debutantes and had their coming out ball and such, even in the United States. However, this was the prototypical debutante season. And in fact, when Rose was 17 and was due to partake, it was the last year, 1958, in which Queen Elizabeth II would agree to meet the debutantes herself. So it was an incredibly special year for the Dugdales to have their daughter participate. But she didn't want to, as you said. She didn't want to be paraded in front of young, eligible men as wife material. She considered it a meat market, quote unquote, and finally agreed with a trade with her parents. And it's 
I love this story because so much of it viewed through our current lens seems improbable. So the parents had to acquiesce to her attending Oxford in return for her coming out party as a debutante. And I find that really interesting because I think in 2021, any one of us, if their daughter approached them and said, I, I want to attend Oxford, the parent would eagerly approve. But in 1958, Rose Dugdale is expected to live a life in which she would be a wife and she would be a socialite and she would partake in high tea and gossip and live a life of leisure and have children and uh, just be part of a social set rather than being her own person. So Rose ultimately shuns this lifestyle, but it, again, it's a process. So when she goes off to Oxford, you see her rebellious spirit in, in one instance where she and a friend dress as men to break the men's only barrier at the Oxford Union. So they snuck in dressed as men. However, she, she didn't give up the luxuries of the wealth that her family bestowed upon her. And it was a slow process before she gave that up. Early on, she writes about the benefits of the class system in England. What do you think led her to become radicalized and renounce her upper middle class lifestyle? Well, I think it was a combination of things. When asked, her easy answers are two events. First is a sort of a pilgrimage for her she was invited with a, with a number of well-to-do students, intellectuals, in 1968 to go to Cuba to view post-revolutionary Castro's Cuba. And it's interesting because she's born in 41, and by 1968, she attends with these college students as a 27-year-old PhD and a professor. So when she attended Oxford, she studied a PPE, which is um, politics, philosophy, and economics. That prepared her well for the sort of endeavors that she would partake in. She goes with students that are five or six years younger than her. You know, when you're 27 years old, there's a big difference between your life and that of a 22-year-old. So she goes with a different eye as to what she sees. Many of the students that went to Cuba were, were not particularly impressed with what they saw. They found Castro's two-hour speeches boring. They noticed the poverty in Cuba. They were forced to do work while they were there, but Rose really fell in love with it. So I think this is the moment where she starts moving towards a hard left turn. Because I mean, a couple of years before she was studying in the United States at Mount Holyoke College. And while she was here, she drove across the country in her sports car that she had shipped to the US. So she was not at this point, a person who was turning her back on her privilege. But when she came back from Cuba in 68, there was this combination of what she saw there, what she experienced, the, the feeling of what a revolution could accomplish. And there was a confluence of events where just after her return home in 1969, you start to see the civil rights movement in Northern Ireland reemerge. So the timing is very interesting for Rose's coming of age and events that were happening just across uh, the sea. I guess it's kind of appropriate because Che Guevara was a hero of the Cuban Revolution, and he came from a well-to-do family to lead an anti-materialist revolution. I was looking up on Che's Wikipedia page, and he has Irish ancestry. And oh, interesting. His father said of Che, the first thing to note is that my son's veins flowed with the blood of Irish rebels. Amazing. So it's a, a very small world. Oh, yeah. And, the, and you know, Sinn Féin and... And uh, the IRA at the time were great admirers of, of Shea. And you know that famous image of him that you see on T-shirts and such is something you do see in Northern Ireland. 
in her studies in England, she got to study with a legend named one of the, the greatest philosophical novelists of all time, Iris Murdoch. I mean, if you go to Oxford and you're you know, a person of esteem and you're a serious student, you're going to have the opportunity to intermingle with all sorts of intellectuals. I, I should have mentioned that when she was in Cuba, she uh, was there with Christopher Hitchens, who was younger, but intellectually her peer at least. She had great opportunity and she was with Peter Eady at Oxford as well. So this is a woman that could have been a lifelong professor at esteemed colleges in Europe or had all kinds of opportunities awaiting her. The vast majority of people who came up the way she did went in the same direction. She veered very hard left and then even further left with this fascination with direct action that she cultivated when she met her lover, Walter Heaton. Now, there were some superficial comparisons between her and Patty Hearst being children of wealth who went on a radical bent. What do you think the major differences between these two women's stories are? That is the first instinct people have. They were contemporaries and they both came from great wealth and the images of them being activists are shocking. But with respect to Patty Hearst, the general thumbnail sketch of her is person who was kidnapped and brought into it, fell in love with a man and engaged in the Symbionese movement. And then when she was in trouble, tried her best to say she was a victim of that group. Rose Dugdale, in great contrast, ran towards the action. She wasn't kidnapped or brought into anything. And one of the reasons I love the analogy is because at the time, in the 1970s, when Rose was making international headlines, analysts and columnists would, and even a judge, would give their own conjecture saying she had fallen under the spell of men, Walter Heaton and then later Eddie Gallagher. And in fact, the truth of the matter is she's different from Hearst because Rose had these men under her spell. And in 1974, even though it wasn't that long ago, it was hard for people to imagine a woman not being the damsel in distress, but instead being the leader and the commandeer of these two radical revolutionary men. And she put off romantic relationships, it seems like, for quite a long time into her adult life. And then when she finally met Wally Heaton, it was something different, wasn't it? Yes, that's a great observation. You know, you don't see any men in her life until Walter Heaton, who is an odd choice in that he's married with children, living with his wife. And, and she engages in her relationship with Walter, just like she did everything else. She did it at 100 miles an hour, right to the fact that she would be at his home every night, right under Walter's wife's nose, having conversations. They would practice Gaelic. And they were lovers right in front of, sometimes literally, Mrs. Heaton, much to her dismay, of course. So it was sort of this free love era, too. But she took that to the extreme, where a woman would come home and find Rose in her marital bed with Walter. So she was a woman of passion, but these men, although she was deeply involved with these two men in specific, was able to throw them away rather easily too. That cruelty they showed Heaton's wife in flaunting the relationship in front of her face also extended the way Heaton approached antagonizing her parents. What was the purpose of his cruelty toward her parents? My guess is that Walter was as hardcore as they came at the time, and he's still alive. He's in his early 90s. To my great relief, he found the book to be one of the best things he's ever read, he said, and completely accurate, which was great for me. 
But it does relay one of the stories where he, one night he had dinner with the family, they invited him over. Again, the family trying to stick by their daughter. And they had this radical revolutionary in their home, much older than their daughter, was spending all of her money and dressing to the nines on her dollar, driving a Mercedes on Rose's money, training his socialist roots. And at dinner, he told the parents that they were getting married and that their daughter was pregnant, which was untrue. On another occasion, Rose's family was greeted at their door by an undertaker who said he had been sent there because Rose's father had passed away, which he had not. So there were these really cruel things. Now, one of the perplexing things Rose did was give Walter, I think it was 24,000 pounds at the time, which is a lot of money uh, then and now, and some of it was for his wife. So one wonders if she felt some guilt about what they were doing. You know, it's hard to tell what happens between lovers and, and what they decide to do, but he was able to come away with a lot of money at Rose's expense. His wife noted that it was a lot of talk because he was very materialistic himself. And he showed that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're a man of the people and you're a union leader and you go into all these rallies and you meet this wealthy revolutionary and instead of giving the money away or spending it on the cause, you buy yourself a Mercedes in the, in the finest suits, you know, you have to wonder about the person's commitment. But it's a different time. And, and again, who knows what his motive was? I remember back in the late 80s, I saw a Jaguar and had an anarchy symbol on the back bumper. <laughs> Perfect. She wasn't just a spendthrift when it came to giving money to Walter. She also was a very soft touch for supporting good causes and people in need in, in her neighborhood. She certainly was. So when she came back to the United Kingdom from Cuba, she gave up her apartment that she had in the city, you know, in Chelsea, and she started a tenants union which is essentially a small office space from which she could assist people in the area who were having trouble getting government benefits or housing. And she would even help people who were squatters in empty apartments. I sometimes jokingly say she wasn't just a social justice warrior. She was like a social justice Navy SEAL. <laughs> Everything she did was, was for the cause. And you can admire her dedication to her beliefs but you're right, she would give money to people when she could to the point where she had essentially given away all of the money that she had and needed to find more money. And that's when she and Walter decided to turn to a familiar source, uh, the only source of money she ever knew, essentially, which was her parents. In 1973, one weekend while the family was away at the British equivalent of the Kentucky Derby, she and a couple of Walter's associates broke into the family home in Devon and stole uh, the family's antiques and art. Now, the paintings they stole were not masterpieces by um, any stretch, but they were valuable pieces, valuable to the family, and sort of thing that I couldn't afford, even though they're not Rembrandts and such. So they had the motive and they had the fortitude to pull off a crime, but they weren't professional criminals, even though Walter had a, a rap sheet. The manner in which they pulled off the crime instantly led the authorities and the family to realize it was clearly Rose. I mean, the servants did not hear the dogs on the estate barking because the dogs all knew Rose. When they looked at what was stolen, it was clear two things. One, that a beautiful piece she had bought her mother for Christmas was untouched, as was her bedroom. So it led the authorities to suspect her right away, and the stuff was recovered, but she and Walter were arrested, tried, and convicted in court. But even though her parents supported her, they wanted her to face justice. They did, and, and one can picture her family wondering when this madness would end, hoping that maybe 
this would be the moment that she would turn it around. And indeed, they went to court every day with their daughter. And the judge seemed to hope it would be that moment for her too. However, things went drastically awry. So the judge in the case found them both guilty and sentenced Walter to six years in prison, which makes sense. He had committed a crime, his prior convict, and he gave him a six-year sentence. And in the sort of revolutionary hyperbole of the 70s, Walter said, not since Christ had there been a greater travesty of justice, which <laughs> gives you a sense of the ego there. Rose adopted the Black Panther approach. She's a great admirer of the Black Panthers her whole life. Knowing that they used the courtroom as a bully pulpit, uh, decided to do the same. And she got up and gave a political statement, railed against her family. Her father was seated there. And, and she said, I love you, daddy, but I, I loathe everything you stand for. And then the judge looked at her and found her guilty and gave her a suspended sentence and, and a fine and set her free, saying that she had fallen under the influence of this man and she was unlikely to ever violate the law again, which would prove to be a massive misjudgment <laughs> on the part of the judge. But in this case, I mean, to not punish someone who desires punishment is almost a punishment in itself. That is such a great point. That is honestly a great point, because if you look at video and photographs of Rose at the time when they're arrested, you see them being let out of the police station and Walter looks grim and Rose is smiling ear to ear. And when she's driven off, she's waving to the press through the window. And even when she leaves court that day, that's where the famous photo emerges of her raising her fist and smiling for the photographers, because this is her chance to get some bona fides in the revolutionary movement and to be let go because of her family standing. As she said, it was pure class justice. And it was a disappointment for her. That would be a harbinger for her future arrest. Now, on the cover of the book, there's a, a picture of her on the right-hand side, and she looks determined to the point of pugnacious. That's exactly the image she was cultivating, but it's worthy because that's what she was, determined to the point of violence, if necessary. And she would later say in interviews that she had resolved herself to the fact that she might have to kill people for the causes that she was involved in, and she was prepared. And she would soon prove her readiness to do so. So a really interesting thing, Walter's in prison and Rose is completely committed to him. She pickets outside the prison on his behalf, marches with these signs to free Walter and tells him she'll always be there and she visits him weekly. And then just after Christmas in 1973, without warning to Walter or anyone else, she leaves, never speaks to him again. So you can see how she just sort of discarded him and she went to Ireland. Now. She and Walter had already been working on behalf of the Republicans from England. They were shipping guns over to Ireland for the IRA. Again, they weren't smart criminals. They put a giant tricolor, orange, white, and green emblem above their offices. It, it dwarfed any other sign on the street. So people knew that they were IRA supporters, but she decided to go to Ireland and join the fight early in 1974 and went right to work towards violence and direct action. She did have what would be considered a criminal past before the theft of her parents' art because of the gun running and such. Right. No convictions for it, but suspected of it. And she had encounters with the law because of she and Walter be drinking every night and get into fights at bars and just real rabble rousers. So she was definitely on people's radar and she was arrested at a protest and just known to be a leader 
amongst what the police would view as troublemakers in Tottenham. So she brought her reputation with her to Ireland. Her desire to support the Irish Republican cause in Northern Ireland, wouldn't the IRA really be very suspicious of a posh woman from England coming over and talking about their cause? They certainly would, and they were, as were IRA sympathizers. So Catholics in Northern Ireland would be suspicious of her as well. So she had a lot to overcome, but when she first got to Ireland, she hooked up with a man she had met once before in England. His name was Eddie Gallagher, and he was known as Mad Eddie Gallagher because he was such a, an extremist rogue that he wasn't willing to wait for IRA leadership to make decisions. You know, So regardless of what side you fall on in the Republicans and the Loyalists, one thing is for sure, the IRA worked strategically they tried to do things that they thought would be strategic gains for them, whether they were violent or not. Eddie was not one to sit around and wait for strategy. So he had his own sort of special unit that Rose joined up with immediately, immediately upon leaving Walter. The two of them came up with a plan, a very violent plan, and they, they decided they would hijack a touring helicopter. So Rose posed as a journalist and approached a, a helicopter rental service spoke to the, the pilot and said she would need to tour certain areas in Ireland for a story she was doing. And on the appointed day, she showed up and the captain was at the helicopter. And then Eddie and a couple of other men approached with guns and hijacked the helicopter and loaded onto it milk churns packed by hand with explosives, packed by Rose into her partners. Many pounds of explosives, more than necessary for the job they were going to pull off. In fact, so much that they had to leave a couple of bombs off of the helicopter because they were too heavy. And they ordered the pilot to fly over the police barracks in Straban, a heavily bombed out area in Northern Ireland already. They dropped these milk churns from the helicopter, missed their target, and they didn't detonate. So nobody was harmed. But one has to keep in mind that what they attempted was mass murder. It wasn't just some crazy idea. Well, it was a crazy idea, but it wasn't just some threatening action. If they had been successful, they would have killed countless people, everybody in sight based on the amount of explosives they had. They were just bad bomb makers and tacticians or operators. So later when the media would interview the leadership at the police barracks, they kind of chuckled and said they watched an amusement as the bombs fell harmlessly. But the fact of the matter is, this was no joking matter, and that was a cover for the police. They were incredibly concerned. This was the first aerial attack on uh, British possessions since World War II. They knew they were dealing with a serious, and from their perspective, deranged terrorist in Rose Dugdale. Very similar to the invasion of the Capitol on January 6th. Just because they're incompetent doesn't mean it's not serious. Right. Too little has been said about the fact that there were pipe bombs found in front of the Republican and Democratic National Committee offices. I mean, this is serious business. And when the plan doesn't come to fruition because of some technical error or it gets interrupted, people seem to put it aside. But you shouldn't. These are attempts to kill as many people as possible. And that's a serious matter, obviously. There are a pair of sisters, the Price sisters, who are very important to the story. And they come from a longstanding Republican family. They do. And I call a chapter where we talk about them, the intersection, for a very specific reason. As I mentioned earlier, there was this confluence of events in a, in a small amount of time, relatively speaking. And in 1973, two young women from Northern Ireland, as you said, their whole family was steeped in IRA 
tradition going back to the 1920s when their father was a soldier with the IRA. And that's all they knew. And they grew up in poverty and were born into the cause, completely unlike Rose. I often offer the pop psychological assessment that Rose, if she could have been anyone else in the world, would have been Dolores Price, one of the sisters. This beautiful, just as committed soldier, the first female commanding officer in an operation, a soldier in the IRA, which is remarkable. And she leads her sister and four men to Great Britain, to the mainland for a bombing campaign. They set off four car bombs, the most notable being an explosion in front of the old Bailey Courthouse that injured hundreds of people. It likened it to the Boston Marathon bombing without death, but lots of maiming, horrific injuries. Because someone had ratted them out, they were grasses, as, as they would say, the six of them were intercepted on their way trying to fly out of the country. They were captured at the airport. So they were immediately tried, the wheels of justice moved quite quickly then, and imprisoned. And the Price sisters and the four men demanded to be treated as political prisoners, which meant they would have more access to visitors, they would get to wear street clothes, they would have more access to each other. The British government, rightly outraged by the bombing, decided, no, you would stay here as criminals. So they went on a hunger strike, and these famous hunger strikes from the 1970s, but it was especially newsworthy for whatever reason editors make their decisions. It was a major story around the world because I think in part these were girls. They were 20 and 18 years old. They were attractive young women that caught headlines at the time that mattered, and they were killing themselves for their cause. So the government, not knowing what best to do, of course, wasn't going to, going to get into their demands, decided to force feed these people. In the book, I describe it force feeding is an absolutely terrible ordeal, worse than the hunger strike. And this really led to these two emaciated sisters just counting the days until they would die. Because when you force feed people, especially the way they did it, it just leads to regurgitation and even more sickness and infection. So it was a horrific time for the Price sisters and it motivated Rose Dugdale. So this book, interesting to me, is really about female heroes and anti-heroes. I remember growing up hearing about Bobby Sands and his hunger strike and his death. And you grow in the Boston area. I'm sure there was a lot of Republican sympathies in your neighborhoods if you didn't grow up in exclusively Italian neighborhoods. Do you remember seeing stuff about the Troubles when you were growing up there? I do. And I did grow up in an Italian neighborhood, but surrounded by a lot of Irish Americans. But I would tell you, even Italian Americans sympathize with Bobby Sands because this was a Catholic movement. These were Catholics mm -hmm. and being oppressed by Protestants being oppressed by colonial power. And there's a lot of sympathy amongst Catholic immigrants, even in the United States, from other countries for this sort of thing. So I remember as a young man, I was only around eight or nine, but I clearly remember my father speaking about Bobby Sands heroically. Let's move on to the art aspect of this. In the past 20 years or so, Vermeer's paintings have gained a new interest in the general public because of movies like The Girl with a Pearl Earring, and the documentary Tim's Vermeer, what was his status in the art collection world in the 1970s? In the 1970s, he was understood amongst art collectors to be a real treasure. It's an interesting thing when you look at it in the 1970s, there was great mystery, even more than there is now, about how many Vermeers were really in existence. So some experts would say 30, some would say 40. Nobody really knew, but great art collectors understood that Vermeer was a treasure, even then. I think you're right that he has gained more attention amongst mainstream art observers since then because of The Girl with the Pearl Earring. And Tim's Vermeer came just after, I think, his resurgence. But Vermeer, 
is fascinating to me. He's my favorite painter. I think of him as sort of a Leonardo type figure, not from a scientific point of view, but as a painter. So they have about the same number of paintings in their body of work. Their paintings are all, each one of them, amazing pieces. And there's mystery behind them, which is a hallmark of both. And I sometimes sum it up for people who aren't interested in art so much by saying, if you think of the two most mysterious portraits probably ever painted, they would be the Mona Lisa and the girl with the pearl earring. These are both paintings that people just wonder about the backstory to both of them. And it's a good corollary between Leonardo and Vermeer. But like many, Vermeer died penniless, like Rembrandt, like Gilbert Stewart here in the United States. And maybe it's something about the character of these incredible artists. But when he died, he left his family in great debt. And it's hard to imagine now, but back then, the baker who provided your family with bread would be someone you'd have a great amount of debt to. After he died to settle the debt, Vermeer's wife took two of his paintings and gave them an agreement with the baker to settle her debt. And those paintings were the guitar player and a painting called Lady Writing a Letter with Her Maid. And amazingly, those two paintings, though they parted ways after they left the baker's possession, would ultimately be reunited in a very odd set of circumstances 300 years later. It seemed like almost fate. I'm not a person to throw that word around. <laughs> I'm like you. I, I totally agree with you. So I'm the sort of person when you see something like this happen, because you don't typically believe in that sort of thing, you're really taken aback at the coincidence of, you know, of all the paintings in the world to be reunited. The two paintings that were given up by Vermeer's wife that way is just a remarkable turn of events. And the fact and the circumstance that they were stolen to help fund freedom and anti-capitalist things that do with economics since his family was broke at the end. And then this to help poor people was just very apropos. It sure is. And especially since the local area where Vermeer lived had suffered a major explosion in the area too that impacted a lot of businesses in the, in the local economy. So the guitar player went to a museum called the Kenwood House, which had been owned and populated by the Guinness family, the founder of Guinness Fortune in Europe, thanks to their beer. The museum has really remarkably beautiful collection. And one evening in late February of 74, somebody broke in. Somewhat clever crime. It was in the middle of the night. They broke open a window after they had secured the doors from the outside of the museum and cut the phone lines so guards would be delayed in getting help. And they broke the window, went into a room, and though there were a large number of really valuable paintings, including a beautiful Rembrandt self-portrait, they only took one. And that one was the guitar player by Vermeer, which in 1974, as you pointed out a few minutes ago, wouldn't be something recognizable to the general public as an important masterwork to take. But the people who took this piece understood that this was an important one to grab and it was worthwhile. So they made off with the painting. They're their getaway, I think, was by happenstance, was through Hampstead Heath, which was an area at the time that was utilized for undercover trysts amongst the LGBTQ plus community. So at the time, because people were closeted to a much greater extent than they are now and far less accepted, nobody was willing to be an eyewitness to anything they saw or even admit they were in the area at the time. So the thieves got away scot-free. At the beginning of the book, you talk about how at least in contemporary world, art theft 
especially of masterpieces, is a very difficult crime because paintings aren't really fungible. Everybody knows when a masterpiece is stolen, how do you sell it? Who is going to buy that hot piece of paint? So what uses do people have for masterpieces when they steal them? Well, typically, in, in terms of masterpiece theft writ large, it's for money because the people that steal them are not these master crooks you see in movies. They are common criminals who have fenced all kinds of stolen things and assume that if they take something worth millions and they get just a small percentage on the black market, they're going to be rich. Well, the fact is, as you said, you can't really sell them. They're too easily recognized and too valuable. So they, they usually put them in hiding. And that's one of the things that drew me to Rose Dugdale 15 years ago when I first encountered her story because she was an outlier. Not only was she the only woman to pull off a heist of a masterpiece, but her purpose was political. It wasn't to monetize these paintings. It was to win the movement of the Price sisters from a British prison back home to Northern Ireland to serve their sentences. So it's really outside of the normal curve in terms of who did it and why they did it. It's an amazing story, and we really shouldn't give away too much more. We want the readers to enjoy the telling of the tale because there is so much more to come when you move into her later life and the consequences of her actions. That's one of the remarkable things about the book, and I'm not patting myself in the back. She lived it. This is her life. But when I was researching it, every time you think her story had come to a close, something else remarkable, like jaw-droppingly remarkable and singular would happen. So that's the great lure of this book is that the story is one that just keeps on going and it's never boring. Beyond Walter Heaton, were you able to speak and interview any of the other major participants in the story? It's very difficult. I was able to speak to some of the investigators. I was able to speak to one criminal who robbed the Rossborough house later in knew of Rose Dugdale, but an interesting development happened. We spoke about Dolores Price and Dolores Price's story ends rather sadly. It's not relevant to Rose's future, but it's important to the book. And here's why. She was later released from prison as was her sister and she stayed a steadfast Republican, but she was very unhappy with the Good Friday Accords. This was not what she was fighting for. She didn't want compromise and became disillusioned with Jerry Adams and Sinn Féin. She went on to give interviews under the guarantee that they wouldn't be revealed until she was dead. Meanwhile, other IRA members did the same here in Boston with Boston College and gave these interviews with the surety that they wouldn't be revealed until everybody was safely gone. But two things happened. First, the Boston College files were ordered open by a federal court judge because they included information about unsolved homicides. And tragically, though Dolores believed that you know, she would live a long life and it would be a long time before anyone heard her story, she passed away early. She was only 63 years old. She had been abusing drugs and alcohol that she attributed to her post-traumatic stress disorder from what she experienced in prison, understandably. So her story was told. As a result, I was very close to being able to speak to Rose Dugdale. I had a very trusted intermediary of hers, but at the last minute, she was told she couldn't participate because so much harm had come from people involved in the Republican movement giving interviews in modern day that she was basically forbidden to speak to me. That is unfortunate, for sure. It certainly is. It would have been amazing. I still hope to meet her someday, but I would say that she did say a lot on the record before this turn of events I just 
describe. So, and she said a lot back then when things happened, so did people around her. So the book is 270 pages long and there are 600 footnotes because there's so much material that I was able to gather on her, ranging from her college records to recorded interviews she gave as late as 2012. When you're investigating as part of your job in security and you're writing up a report for your superiors at a museum or for a client, if you're independently consulting, how is that different from the investigation that you're doing when you're writing a book? You know, the great difference is the stress level, frankly. When you're writing a book about the thefts that Rose committed, they're solved. The paintings are back home. Everybody lived happily ever after, except sadly for Dolores Price. When you're working on an investigation such as the one I work on at the Gardner Museum, you frankly are tortured every day by the empty frames that hang in the museum. I've been looking for 15 years. I always tell people, imagine you lost your car keys and they're the only keys to your Jaguar XJS. And you've been looking for them for 15 years, knowing that the case has not been closed, the story cannot be told, is especially difficult for a person like me who writes books that have an ending. My story has not ended. So famously, the museum doesn't allow its pictures to be moved around. The collection must stay on the wall as it was. So that must be very haunting to see those those open places there. It is. The museum decided to put the frames back up. That's not part of the will, but they did. And it's a reminder to people that the paintings that are missing will come home one day. And beyond that, the only place they should ever hang is at the Godner. Because as you mentioned, when Mrs. Godner passed away in 1924, she left a first of its kind will that said her collection could never be changed in any way at all. So you can't move one painting to another room or or even within a room or add or subtract from the collection. And when I tell people, they're usually really surprised. And I I bring it home this way. I say that if the Louvre decided they felt bad for the Gardner's loss and donated the Mona Lisa to the museum to hang where the Vermeer was, we'd have to say, no, I'm sorry, we can't, because you literally cannot add anything to Mrs. Gardner's collection. So these spaces will remain dedicated only to the great losses that we have, and we will one day get them back. I think it is poetic in a way, though. So often, I mean, you know, we as humans can get used to things, and we adapt to new circumstances so much. But to kind of commemorate that loss in that particular way, I think, is, is very unique and touching. I agree. You know, many times some there are, there are some, I think, deranged critics who think the museum has profited from this theft because the empty frames are such an attraction. And to those people, I always say, that just means you don't understand the lure of a Vermeer. I mean, the number of people who would have come to the museum over these last 30 years just to see our Vermeer dwarfs the number of people who came to see empty frames. It is a beautiful thing that we do, I believe, to keep the frames up there. No other museum has made the effort that ours has from day one to get its stolen works back. We've never quit in 30 years, and we have a $10 million reward outstanding for information that leads me to the recovery of the art. So uh, we're very much committed to it. And You know, I like what you said about people becoming accustomed to things because I've never seen the paintings I'm seeking except in pictures. And I've been around art long enough to understand that photographs, even the best high-res photographs, do not compare to a a live painting. So we're used to seeing high-gloss images of these paintings. I think when people see them again in person, it's going to be a whole new experience for them. Since you are working the case, if you were to be able to solve it, 
and crack the case and get the return of the paintings, or at least some of the paintings, as an employee of the museum, would you be able to write about it? Or where would that stand in the process? I think that once the case is over, that I will definitely want to tell my story. I pray for that day to come. But I always think that knowing the way the investigation is and the people I deal with, the whole entire story will probably never be able to be told because of confidences that must remain intact. But I do know that in some way, shape, or form, ultimately, the story will be told. Well, Anthony, I want to thank you again for coming on Book Talk and sharing The Woman Who Stole Vermeer with us. It's been a pleasure, and it's tremendously fascinating. Stephen, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Take care and be safe. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Anthony Amore is the author of The Woman Who Stole Vermeer, the true story of Rose Dugdale and the Rustboro House Art Heist, which is published by Pegasus Crime. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WIPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wiplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk, care of WIPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111, or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 License for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work, but there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.